This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. News commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, opinion leaders, and authors. Season 10, Episode 7, Christians Against Christianity, How Right-Wing Evangelicals Are Destroying Our Nation and Our Faith, in conversation with author Dr. Obrey Hendricks. Our guest today is Dr. Obrey Hendricks, noted biblical scholar and social activist. He's one of the foremost commentators on the intersection of religion and political economy in America. He's a visiting scholar at Columbia University in the Department of Religion and the Department of African American and African Diasporic Studies. He joins us today from his office in New York. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hendricks. Well, thank you there, Brother Harley. Glad to be with you. Wonderful. Dr. Hendricks, let's launch into your book. The okay. evangelical movement has played an outsized role in the last couple of presidential elections in 2020, 2016, without a doubt. What motivated you to write Christians Against Christianity? Well, I have to tell you, it was a mixture of of sorrow, anger, chagrin at what I see and what I saw then and still see going on in the public square, emanating from the, the vitriolic, loveless discourse of, of right-wing evangelicalism, what seems to be a, a real misportrayal, a, mis, a real false portrayal of the essence of the Christian message. And so I wrote the book to, to really counteract the kinds of of, of hate-filled messages uh, that are coming from the right wing and, and the kind of false narratives that they use to attack so many people and, and, and demonize so many folk in, in America. And, and in a certain sense, I mean, it feels to me like I'm standing up and defending the gospel against those who are telling lies in the name of the gospel. I couldn't agree more. In your book, you focus on several major issues that the evangelical movement has used to rally support such as social activism, marriage equality and gay rights, immigration, abortion, gun control, and the role of big business. And you take the reader back to scripture yourself to discuss each one of those subjects. Can we start with social activism? But first, in your introduction to the book, you relate the story of your grandparents, your parents, and the fine men and women in your church community who influenced your life as a boy. That really resonated with me, and it reminded me of my own boyhood. Could you take a few moments and just tell us about that formative experience that you and your sister enjoyed with your broader family and the church community? I was born in Farmville, Virginia, in Prince Edward County, which is a pretty much a rural county. My family there was a deeply religious family. I mean, I had ministers and deacons and ushers and church musicians and, you know, all throughout the family. You know, in the book, I, I talk about the, the kind of, of Christianity uh, adherence to the gospel that I grew up seeing and, and witnessing being portrayed. You know, it was, it was really about, and this permeates much of Afro-Christianity, it's about loving your neighbor. If I could summarize it, it was about loving a neighbor. You know, my, my grandparents were were deeply religious. They never turned their back on anyone in community. As with the case of my, my parents, they taught what I learned from them and 
my church family was that we are to love our neighbors no matter who they are, and that we are not to demonize anyone. I just got very strong values mm-hmm. of a gospel that is about the common good and that cares about the least of these and that cares about there being a just and loving society. And the reason I talked about that, and I mentioned my grandfather, who's such a, a monumental figure, just a paragon of a gospel man in, in my experience, and my parents as well. And what the reason I mentioned them is as a counterpoint and really explanation of why I'm so outraged by what we see on, on the right wing. They are teaching the exact opposites of what I grew up seeing as Christianity, mm-hmm. which is about doing good and being good and loving folk and being honest and not demonizing anyone and caring about the least of these and not being and not supporting those who lock children up in cages and, and, and all of that. And so that's what that chapter is about. And it touched me very deeply in my soul to to really reflect on just how much I was given in the bosom of that black church tradition. And that came across, that comes across very powerfully as the introduction to your book. And I was very moved by it. And I wanted you to share that with our, with our listeners this morning. So thank you. Let's move on to social activism because that's the, one of the, that's the first section that you deal with in that. And of course you've been a social activist all of your, your life. Now in that section, you reference a gentleman by the name of John MacArthur who has, and I'll summarize this and love you to jump in. John MacArthur, who was part of the evangelical movement has actually come out and said that social justice is anti-biblical. And Mm -hmm. off the air, you and I were talking about Martin Luther King's famous letter from Birmingham jail, a good friend of mine who sent me a copy of that letter just recently. I mean, I've I've read it years ago, but he, he refreshed my interest in the letter. I read it. We discussed it together. Tell us about what Martin Luther King wrote in that letter from the Birmingham jail, addressing that letter on social activism to the clergy. And then the current John MacArthur, a leader, prominent leader of the evangelical movement, who's saying that social justice is anti-biblical? It's pretty crazy. You know, Martin Luther King in that letter was responding to those who said, those like Jerry Falwell, who at the time said that ministers should not be involved in politics and that he was outside of his role as a religious leader. And also, you know, talked about being willing to accept gradual change. And so he wrote to answer those critics like Billy Graham, who said things like that. But essentially what he made clear is that social and political activism on behalf of justice is a foundational to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get a guy like John MacArthur, who is in evangelical circles. He's a superstar. You know, he has a huge church, huge following. He's written, oh, I don't know how many books. They say he's published 150 books or something mm-hmm. like that, if I remember correctly. Two of his books have been million sellers, right? Well, he wrote a manifesto open a manifesto style open letter called the statement on social justice and the gospel and you're right he says that in it social justice is anti-biblical and it's it is shocking it's and i'm going to make a judgment here that and it's actually not only is, is it false it's it's a ridiculous claim mm-hmm. because social justice well he doesn't understand really the meaning of justice in in the bible and if i could just take a moment to yeah, uh, to explain the the Hebrew terms underlying social justice, it might what I'm saying might be clearer. The most often occurring ethical concept in the Hebrew Bible, in the Bible, 
but in the Hebrew Bible, is the term mishpat, justice. We translate that as justice and couple that with love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus and the fact that Jesus also quotes it as being one of the main commandments. You add love your neighbor as yourself to the concept of justice. You get egalitarian justice, basic, just basic to the Bible. But more than that, the second most often quoted, often mentioned term, ethical term in the Hebrew Bible is sodakah, translated as righteousness, but it's really a a mistranslation if people understand righteousness as personal piety. It means really doing right in society. And so when you put mishpat and sodakah together, which are paired together more than any other terms in the Bible, what you get is social justice. Mm -hmm. That, That the foundation the foundational ethic of the Bible is doing justice, doing right, treating people right in society. That is basic. And when you look at the teachings of Jesus, he, that's what he talks about more than anything other than God. He talks about, he, he teaches ethics. He doesn't teach much of what to believe. He says how we should treat people. We should treat mm-hmm. people right. We should take care of the least of these and make sure folk have enough food to eat and that they have shelter they have the basics in life so for someone like MacArthur of his stature to say something as way out as social justice is anti-biblical shows it's it's really representative of just how off base and how fallacious the 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 foundation the foundational beliefs of right-wing evangelicals happen to be and we know that must be the case if they could support an irreligious walking embodiment of the seven deadly sins like like Donald Trump. Indeed, and I it is it is shocking when you when you put it that way. But again, the uh, thank you for for taking us back to the original source scripture, which all too often lay people like myself don't have the the luxury to hear that, to actually go back to scripture and say there it is, there it's written right there. Whether you're religious or not religious, it at least gives you it gives me and other my listeners also a sense that we've got to take with a grain of salt some of the quote unquote truths that are being foisted upon the American public from the evangelical movement. If we yeah. could if we could move on for a moment to to the mm-hmm. next major platform that causes a great deal of ire among the evangelical right and that's marriage equality and gay rights. Mm. And of course that's it's also featured here in your book. And of course the evangelical movement has used the issue of marriage equality and gay rights as a wedge issue to garner support for their cause. You address both issues in your book. Could you speak to that, Dr. Hendricks? Yes, sir. Uh, that's such an important and, and misunderstood s- subject. That so many lives have been destroyed psycho-emotionally and actually literally destroyed uh, because of misunderstanding. Number one is the. it begins with Sodom and Gomorrah and and we're told that Sodom and Gomorrah, the structure of Sodom and Gomorrah, proves that homosexuality is a sin in the sight of God. The problem is, though, that in the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, in, in Genesis, it doesn't, when it talks about a, a gang of men outside of the house of Lot wanting him to send out his strangers, who we, who we understand are, are his, his guests, who are strangers, we understand are, are angels, they ask him to send those 
his guests out so they might know him or have sex with him. Yada in Hebrew means you know to, to know it. It really means to have sex. Mm-hmm. It says nothing about homosexuality. It's talking about a bunch of men who are looking to gang rape some other men. Nowhere are we told that Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed because of homosexuality. Gang rape is a crime of violence. Mm-hmm. It's not primarily a, a sexual crime. And But even more than that, the biblical writers after Genesis understood that understood that because they explained that the sin of the men in Sodom and the story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah is that they were transgressing the very important cultural law, if you will, of cultural tradition of hospitality. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in those days, you, know, you have when everything is everyone lived near deserts and living was so precarious, uh, you know, hospi- extending hospitality to others was lifeblood. It could make the difference between life and death. Yes. And so for one to transgress the law of, of hospitality is terrible. So you see Ezekiel says that. We see even Jesus alludes to that in Mark. And then further on, when you look at the other, you look at the, the few things in the Bible, uh, a couple in the Hebrew Bible, and then a couple from Paul in the New Testament. And when we look at them in context, and in cultural context, we realize it's not talking about homosexuality as a, a sexual identity because there was no notion of sexual identities until really until modernity, until really the, the Enlightenment. And so when they talk about, for instance, men lying with, with men, you put that in cultural context and you translate it correctly it's talking about men who are a- emulating he moses is telling hebrew men not to emulate the fertility cult the temple fertility cult of the canaanites mm. by having what they call temple prostitution and i i you know i wish i had more time to explain yeah. it but, but the whole point is that the biblical witness from in every place in the bible that seems to talk about homosexuality because all of because not all of them are even talking about same-sex relations, that when you look at them, they are just too ambiguous for us to draw a conclusion that homosexuality is a sin, that people who are born homosexuals, that they're born sinfully. It's it's just not there. And the reason why these, these fallacies can stand is that there's this cultural notion that goes way back against homosexuality, mm-hmm. and they're just cultural notions, and then there's un- misunderstandings of the biblical notions, and it's very tragic. Let's move on to immigration and Islamophobia, because again, within the within the rubric of the evangelical right, they are two issues that are, are highlighted. Well, Tell me well, about that. Let me, before we go on, let me ask, was that, was my answer clear? Because yeah. it's such, that answer on homosexuality, I mean, that, it's, it's, it's involved, the chapter's involved, and it includes translation issues and all that. I just want to make sure that I gave a clear thumbnail. I think you gave a very clear answer to it. And I think at this point, for any of our listeners who wish to follow up on that, I'd really recommend that they buy your book. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> so let's move on to the to immigration and Islamophobia, as we discussed, because they are they've been front and center in the last couple of presidential campaigns, and the evangelical right has opinions and positions on both of those issues. Okay, well, you know, in terms of of, of immigration, the only way that anyone, particularly these right wing evangelicals, the only way that they can 
demonize immigrants and immigration and oppose immigration of those who are trying to escape human suffering, as if they ignore the widespread dictates of the Bible throughout the Bible. In fact, it, one of the most basic concepts in the, in the Jewish Bible is to, you must treat immigrant strangers with hospitality. Mm-hmm. It says that over and over again. It even says that when, they, when immigrant strangers come into the country, provision at, uh, must be made for them to have a decent sustenance till they can get on their feet. The Bible says that. The Bible does not say that folk have to assimilate into the surrounding culture. They just have to respect and, and not violate that, that culture. These nuts who attack people because they speak they speak Spanish or other languages, they, I mean, they're, they're violating the, the Bible in the name of the Bible. And it, it's ridiculous. I mean, the Bible even says that, and many preachers don't talk about this, but one of the reasons that tithes, that tithing was commanding is to help support immigrants. Oh, when really? they come. And so... You know, this the, the right wing opposition to immigration, it is anti-biblical, it's false, and it's it's sinful, and and to some extent, in some of its its way out of appropriation, particularly in, in pronouncements of Trump, it's just pure evil opposing people who are suffering trying to get a decent life. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable that religious leaders could call themselves Christians and take an anti take the kind of anti-immigrant stance that they've taken. Now, let's move on to the the really huge issue, which has been before us for decades now, and that's abortion, pro-life, Roe v. Wade, which it was it was very interesting. You in your book, you make the point that the evangelical right likes to say that that abortion issue, the pro-life issue, was their galvanizing formative issue. But in fact, you you make the point in your book that it was really, Segregation, which was their big, which was their formative issue, rather than yeah. abortion. But but let's yeah. come back to abortion and pro life because your 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 writings on that subject were very compelling. Yeah, just just a word about about the roots, the racist roots. Just a word on that. This is what we might call the modern evangelical movement that you know sort of begins with Jerry Falwell on forward forward. It was they came together to oppose school desegregation. So their roots are racist. I talk about it at at some length in the book. I won't yes. go into. In terms of, of of abortion, what is so sad is that these folk who claim that they oppose abortion because it's a biblical sin, what they don't say is that the Bible never says anything about abortion being a biblical sin. In fact, it says almost nothing about abortion. The only two places that we see anything about it is Exodus 21, verses 22 and 23, that speak of when a, uh, a pregnant woman, when, if two men are fighting and they injure a pregnant woman and cause her to miscarry, for the fetus to be injured or to die, that the punishment with regard to, to the woman's injury is an eye for an eye, but the punishment for hurting the fetus is a financial fine. Mm-hmm. And so we see a distinction between a living, breathing human being and fetus or a zygote, zygote or embryo in the, in the Bible. It doesn't say anything about, being sim- about it being simple, does it? And then when you go to n- n- Numbers 5, which is the only place that talks about voluntary abortion at all in the Bible, it says that abortion is the punishment that God will mate out in, to a pregnant, a married pregnant woman 
whose pregnancy is the result of uh, adultery. If abortion is a sin, and if it's murder, and if Numbers 5 says that, that God punished, will punish a woman by aborting a fetus, then what that means is that God must be a sinner too. I know that's, yes. <laughs> and then we get down to it. Other than that, it says nothing about it. And in the history of Christendom, uh, there's never been any agreement when a, a zygote or an embryo becomes a, a human being. I mean, at what point a soul enters into it. Nowhere does it say that a zygote is a, has a soul for the moment of conception. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't say that. It doesn't elude that. And the places that talk about when, when various writers talk about what God knew about them in the womb or talks about themselves in the, in the womb, they're not making some kind of medical statement. They're, they're, they're making a metaphorical statement about God's omniscience. And, and foreknowledge. And so, in a nutshell, nowhere in the Bible does it say that abortion is a sin, which is not to say that there's, that abortion is not problematic. Mm-hmm. But you cannot tell people, you, you cannot attack folk, you cannot kill people, claiming that you're pro-life, saying that abortion is a sin in the Bible, sin in the faith. It, it is not a sin. If it's a problem, well, then discuss it as a problem. But mm-hmm. it's, it is not a biblical sin. What is significant about that is that whether lawmakers in America are saying it or not, their notion of why abortion should be deemed illegal is because it, it's based on their misunderstanding of the Bible. And we have to correct that, Ken. Well, I think you've made it, uh, you've made it very clear by citing your, your scriptural context there that once again, the evangelical right seems to be playing a little fast and loose with the scriptural basis for their opposition to abortion. Let's come on to gun control, the apparent support that the evangelicals give for for gun rights and, and that sort of thing. Well, you know, um, in my chapter on Christians Against Christianity, dealing with the NRA, you know, what I, what I really point out is some basic stuff about the NRA, NRA that a lot of people don't understand at all. I mean, well, first off, I'm saying that you can't be pro-life and support the NRA at the same time. And one of the reasons is, deal with this later in the chapter, is not the major point, but one of the reasons is that the NRA is a shill, a, a front organization to increase sales for the gun lobby. That's why they why they exist. And I document that that's very clear. And they use all kinds of claims to to accomplish that. They use racism quite a bit. They when Barack Obama was elected, they used the specter of a black president to scare people to 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 buy all kinds of guns and gun sales increased diametrically. They support the the very bellicose and evil proclamations of Donald Trump, you know, the violent right wing factions to get them to buy more guns and to talk about protecting themselves to the point that it's hard to get ammunition for certain kinds of guns now because it's sold out. The NRA, but more than that, the NRA claims that, and this is my main point, that it is a God-given right to own guns. That is just ridiculous. And in fact, when the NRA was formed in 1871, it wasn't until almost 1980 when heard anything like that about a right, a God-given right to own to own guns, and so they have partnered with 
the, the, the right-wing evangelicals to make these kinds of claims about a God-given right to own guns. And it's really in service just to the gun lobby who cares nothing about how many children are slaughtered, how many people die. And in that sense, the right-wing evangelicals, they are, they've made a pact with what I would call a, an organization that deals ultimately in death and harm. 33,000 mm-hmm. Americans are killed a year in gun violence. You know, 2,500 are children. Yes. But right-wing evangelicals support the NRA in their quest to add to the 336,000 million guns that are already in circulation, enough for ed- one for every man, woman, and child. And that's just sick and it's evil. We must call it that. It's destructive mm-hmm. to our society. And if you are call yourself a real follower of the Bible, you really have to question supporting NRA rhetoric. It's because it's destroying our nation and it's bastardizing the faith. Well, Dr. Hendricks, I really appreciate your having taken us back into scriptures themselves to show chapter and verse that a lot of what we hear from the evangelical right just is not soundly founded in biblical scholarship. In, in the epilogue to your book, you speak about the spirit of an antichrist, but you make clear that the antichrist is not some kind of a monster, but a distortion of Christ's teachings. Could you speak to that epilogue in your book, the spirit of the antichrist? We have all these popular myths about the antichrist, about this big, this universal antichrist that will destroy the world. And, you know, that really comes from conflating the beast in the book of Revelation, uh, which which says nothing at all about an antichrist. Antichrist is only mentioned in, in John letters, First John, I believe Second John, but certainly First John. And the antichrist is someone who teaches the opposite of what Christ taught in the name of Christ. And it says that those who do that really are imbued with a spirit of antichrist. And it's not talking about a metaphysical antichrist or anything like that, supernatural antichrist. It's talking about a really an ideology or, or false belief about Christ that is taught in the name of Christ. And I go into more explanation, of course, in that chapter. And the reason I deal with that is because when we look at the the right-wing evangelical movement today, it's clear that they have embraced a spirit of antichrist in the sense that so many of their teachings are antithetical to the biblical message, but they teach it in the name, in the name of Christ. For instance, John MacArthur, we spoke of him earlier, Mm -hmm. and his teaching against social justice. Well, that's antithetical to the gospel message, to the biblical message. It is, in that sense, it is anti-Christian. It Mm -hmm. is anti-Christ. And so we must look at this right-wing movement and look at all of the misinformation that they're giving and the fact that they they have replicated so so much of the the, the hateful and wrong-headed lies that Donald Trump has promulgated and which they have redefined wrong as right and right as wrong, that's antithetical to the, the moral and ethical message of the biblical witness. And in that sense, it's anti-biblical. And for Christians, it's anti-Christian. They are anti-Christian. And they, as a movement, are imbued with a spirit of anti-Christ. And that's what I mean by that. And if a, and if a movement is an anti-Christ movement in the sense that they claim to be representing Christ, but they are uh, doing the antithesis and saying the antithesis of what Jesus taught, then to my mind, 
there is an element of evil that they are purveying, and we really need to call it out by its name. If you have a movement that harms innocent people for no reason other than you can, that is evil. Mm-hmm. And so immigration policy, evil. The, the Their demonization of same-gender-loving people, evil. Putting kids in cages, evil. Demonizing folk because of what they believe, is evil. And that's what I'm talking about when I say a spirit of Antichrist. Mm. Well, Dr. Hendricks, in the remaining few moments of our podcast, are there any closing thoughts you have for our listeners? Because your your book, again, the title is Christians Against Christianity. Are there any closing thoughts you have for our listeners? Because it's a very powerful book. It's a book which I think for anyone who is a keen observer of our political system needs to read this book so that they will have the self-confidence and the arguments to know that so much of what is put out there as being quote-unquote gospel by, mm-hmm. the, by the opposition, in fact, is not based in, uh, in Scripture. Well, you know, brother, I, I, I tell you, this is such a dangerous time. And there's so much misinformation. What I would call, and particularly Bible believers of, of any stripe, that we must really become more familiar with more familiar with the biblical witness itself and mm-hmm. stop taking the word of these self-anointed folk who so many of whom have no idea what they're talking about or who are purposely giving misinformation to the to the masses. We must remember that the core of the gospel first. Jesus said that loving your neighbor is the tantamount to loving God. And the and I would say also we must remember that there is no way, there's no evidence of love for God or spirituality, really, unless we're showing love for our neighbor. And also Matthew 25, 31 through 46, taking care of the least of these, uh, the, how God judges us by how much good we try to do in the world and how many people we try to help and we're not judged by whom we love intimately in our in our bedrooms or what we believe and don't believe i mean i'm just saying we must get back to the basics i think and build from there to try to build a world of justice and love try to eschew all the mean-spirited ignorance that's going on and that includes every vestige of trumpism and right-wing evangelicalism, evangelical politics. Dr. Hendricks, I'd like to thank you very much for those eloquent words and very moving words. And just in closing, where can my listeners buy a copy of your book? Well, you know, it should, it's in Barnes and Nobles and in all the major stores. One can, of course, order it on Amazon. But if your local store doesn't have it, they should order it from them. You know, you can go on my website to find out more about the book. It's Obrey Hendricks, O-B-E-R-Y-H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S-P-H-D.com. Obreyhendricks.com website. I'll tell you more. You can't buy the book on my website, but it'll tell you about the book. Thank you so much, Brother Hurley. This, I appreciate the, the opportunity to share with you. Well, Dr. Hendricks, it's been my pleasure. And thank you very much for enlightening me, as well as, more, most importantly, my, my listeners, on this this key issue, we all want to be as informed as we possibly can be with regard to political messaging. And as you say, there is so much misinformation out there. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Look forward to having you back. And for my listeners, make sure to visit my website and specifically go to the blog post tab for more detailed 
biography about Dr. Aubrey Hendricks. Once again, Doctor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, sir. Take care. All the best to you. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit my website to subscribe to the podcast, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com. It's free to do so, and by subscribing, all future episodes will come directly to your inbox. You can also listen to the previous 190 shows, read my book, peruse my blog, send me an email, or leave a comment. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.